And welcome to the all-new Tyson on Sports podcast. I'm Tyson Whiting. You can follow me on Twitter at Tyson on Sports. It's going to be a lot of fun as this is the first edition of the Tyson on Sports podcast. And it's something where I wanted to get back in the sports talk radio game, wanted to get back in the sports podcast game. And really, I think the biggest decision I had to make over the last three or four months or maybe over the last year or so one is to try to find some time to do it as I'm a little bit busy as the voice of the Utah Grizzlies, the ECHL team. It's my third year calling games for them, but also trying to figure out what exactly is going to be the edge of this podcast. After all, it seems like the podcast always has to have a theme. You know, there's so many podcasts out there. You know, there's hockey podcasts. I really enjoy the Spit and Chicklets podcast in particular. You know, you think about, you know, basketball podcasts, baseball podcasts. Everything kind of has to have a specialty to where when you turn into the podcast, you know exactly what you're getting. Well, here it's going to be a little bit different. It's a sports talk podcast. It's kind of got a little bit of a radio flair to it. But it's also going to have a historical perspective, as I really am a big fan of sports history and sports trivia. So there's going to be a lot of historical perspective type of stuff. And we're going to talk about a lot of fun things. We're even going to talk about the 1989 NCAA tournament a little bit. And we'll also talk about kind of an interesting trend between coaches and PA systems in the 1989 calendar year. So we're going to have a lot of fun. Obviously, I've been watching the NCAA tournament uh, selection show you know I've been following kind of the brackets and where they were were going to line up and now that the brackets are out trying to figure out exactly who I'm going to pick as my champion you know you get all these people some people like to go with like five brackets six brackets for me I go with one bracket <laughs> because if I go with more than one I'm not going to remember who I have picked and because you know if you fill out five brackets they, there's got to be some sort of subtle differences in each of your brackets you're not filling out five brackets and then picking the exact same teams so I'm a one bracket person I'm trying to figure out you know is Gonzaga going to be the first team since Bobby Knight's 1976 Indiana Hoosiers to go undefeated for an entire season it's going to be tough to say it's really tough to go undefeated for an entire year but I think Gonzaga might be that team. I mean, after all, not only are they winning games, but they are dominating against good competition. I mean, I know they play in the West Coast Conference where there's not many tough conference opponents there, so it's not like they've been tested a whole lot over the last month, maybe month and a half. However, they have some big wins on their resume. I mean, you know, in particular, the one I think of and the one that comes to mind first is Gonzaga looking really good on a neutral side against Iowa. You know, and Luca Garza and you know, Gonzaga just seemed to dominate that game, and they just seemed to dominate the pace of a college basketball game. And Mark Few, you know, you talk about kind of a unique story where Mark Few is an outstanding coach, but he's decided to stick around in Gonzaga for two decades. Like, who does that? You know, other coaches, they're thinking about money. They're thinking about moving up to the next level. You know, Mark Few in the West Coast Conference there, I mean, he's dominated it for two decades. You know, at some point you would have thought, okay, maybe Mark Few, if he wants to be a college basketball coach, you know, maybe he you know, goes to the Big Ten, goes to the ACC, makes more money, you know, challenges himself a little bit more. Or maybe he goes to the NBA. I mean, we've seen Brad Stevens go to the NBA and have a little bit of success. You know, the coach from Butler, uh, the, uh, who led Butler to back-to-back national championship games. However, Mark Few's decided he likes it there in Gonzaga, and he's stuck there for two decades. And uh, it's really interesting to kind of see Gonzaga go from a Cinderella at the start of the century, you know, 1999, had that Elite Eight run, and then it's just kind of continued over the last two decades to where Gonzaga's a one seed, and you don't even think about, oh, they're a West Coast Conference team. There's no way they can compete with the big boys 
No, Gonzaga is the big boy. Not only in the West Coast Conference, not only west of the Mississippi, they're probably the big boy in all of college basketball just with their, their continuing and consistent just dominance in the college football landscape. So I'm thinking Gonzaga is going to win the whole thing. After all, it's going to be – if they do, they go undefeated for the entire year. They are the fifth team to enter the NCAA tournament undefeated since Bobby Knight's 1976 National Championship Indiana Hoosiers. They had Scott May and Quinn Buckner and Kent Benson. And I think about, you know, you, you talk about the other four teams that, uh, you know, went undefeated going into the tournament. And those teams were outstanding in their own rights. You know, I think of the 1979 Indiana State Hoosiers with Larry Bird and Carl Nix and Bob Heaton. That was a really good team, but they ended up losing to Magic Johnson in the national championship game. Now, that's the furthest an undefeated team went, uh, you know, of the four as they lost in the national championship game. Obviously, Larry Bird, an outstanding player. 1991, UNLV, they lost in the final four semifinals to Duke, and uh, that's one of the biggest what-ifs. And, you know, it's one of the topics we'll talk about a little bit later is some of the biggest what-ifs in NCAA tournament history. Late in that game, Greg Anthony fouled out, and UNLV just wasn't the same team after that. If Greg Anthony had not fouled out, UNLV probably defeats Duke, and they probably go undefeated and win the national championship. That might have been Jerry Tarkanian's best team. That was probably even better than the 1990 team that ended up winning the national championship the year before for UNLV. Oddly enough, they beat Duke in that national championship game, and it was Duke the next year with a more experienced Bobby Hurley and a more experienced Christian Leitner, and you had a freshman named Grant Hill who was outstanding. You know, Duke was a better team, and UNLV obviously was missing Greg Anthony for maybe the last five or six minutes after fouling out. Um, you know, it just uh, the game went, ended up going Duke's way. Christian Leitner hit some big free throws at the end. But when you think about the great teams in college basketball history, UNLV is certainly the first one that comes. I mean, if it's not the first one, it's certainly one of the top four or five that end up coming to mind as we're talking college basketball here on the Tyson on Sports Podcast with a little bit of a historical perspective. We'll also talk a little bit about this year's tournament and some of the other fun things. And Drew Brees retiring later on in the program. You think about 2014 Wichita State. They ended up going to the round of 32 before losing. Now, Wichita State was one of those teams you kind of wonder if their schedule was tough enough. If I remember right, you know, they were like a one seed, and they ended up playing uh, Kentucky, who was probably rated, you know, they, they were probably seeded a little bit lower than they should have. Kentucky was either an eight or a nine seed, and Wichita State ended up losing to them. And then the next year, Kentucky went undefeated going to the Final Four. That was the great team with Carl Anthony Towns and Devin Booker and the Harrison Twins and Trey Lyles and, and just a bunch of great players. Willie Cauley-Stein and Kentucky ended up losing in the uh, semi semifinals. You know, so it's one of those where, you know, it's tough to go undefeated, but I think the best thing that happened to Gonzaga was what happened in the West Coast Conference Championship game against BYU. They got down by 12 at halftime. You know, things weren't necessarily going all that well, but they were able to come back in that game. They faced a little bit of adversity. You know, that's where the old cliche goes that, you know, some coaches probably think, oh, loss might not be the, the worst thing in the world. You know, it kind of resets things. It kind of lightens the mood. You know, it kind of takes that undefeated pressure away. You know, the thought that, okay, we got a loss. We got the undefeated thing talk out of the way. Now we can just focus on winning the rest of our games. And I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, for Gonzaga, facing that adversity and still being able to win uh, certainly uh, kind of shows a little bit of that character of the team because, you know, it's kind of like with Mike Tyson when he faced Buster Douglas or some of the other instances, some of the other great upsets in sports. 
it always ends up starting with a favorite going down and maybe a favorite that hasn't faced adversity in a long time, if, if not ever. And then you really wonder, how does that team handle the adversity? You know, I think of when uh, the Soviet Union lost to uh, Team USA in the 1980 Olympics, you know, the, the miracle on ice. You know, the Soviet Union was battled by the, you know, by the USA all game. USA kind of took the lead, and then I don't know that the Soviet Union really knew how to handle that. I think the big thing for Gonzaga and why I think they got a good chance of winning it all this year is because they handled that adversity. They got down by 12 at halftime. BYU had to play pretty much a perfect half to get get it to a 12-point lead at half. And then Gonzaga just kind of found a way to battle back after that. So uh, that's where I think Gonzaga, they are my pick to go undefeated and win the national championship. Uh, it's going to be an interesting bracket for them, though, because they'll play the 16 seed whoever wins the play-in game, and they'll play them in the first round. Second round, Gonzaga will play either Oklahoma or Missouri. An interesting old Big 8 matchup there. Um, I'm thinking Oklahoma's going to win that game. Gonzaga probably a little bit too much for Oklahoma there. And then you face either Creighton, UCSB, Virginia, or Ohio. Now, Virginia, remember, you know, they're kind of a, still a question mark. You know, can they end up playing with the, you know, because they ended up having to bow out of the ACC tournament. You know, can Virginia play or is it going to be Creighton? I mean, Creighton did get blown out by Georgetown in the Big East Championship game, and you wonder kind of where the psyche of the locker room is after uh, Greg McDermott said whatever he said that, um, you know, ended up uh, creating a bit of a controversy. So, you know, Gonzaga might have an easier path there through the uh, Sweet 16, and then you get to the Elite Eight. You're probably facing Iowa. You know, that's a team that Gonzaga played well against and beat earlier in the season on a neutral site. So Gonzaga wouldn't be all that concerned with Iowa, even though Iowa does have the really good big guy in Luka Garza and a few good seniors surrounding him. You know, you think about Oregon, maybe they could make a run at it. You know, Kansas, the three seed, not necessarily as – as dominant as other Kansas teams, or you can think about a team like USC. If USC can get past the the winner of the Wichita Drake first four game, I think USC can be pretty tough. They got Evan Mobley, who's an outstanding player, who was the Pac-12 Player of the Year. So I think bracket-wise, I think it matches up pretty well for Gonzaga leading up to the Final Four, and then maybe you get to the Final Four semis and face either a Michigan or a Florida State, you know, maybe Alabama, the two seed, or somebody like that. I think Gonzaga, I mean, every game they're going to be favored, obviously, all the way throughout, uh, maybe even to the championship game, regardless of who they play, whether it's Baylor or Illinois. uh, Gonzaga will be favored in those games. So I think it's going to be a tough test for Gonzaga, but I do think they're going to go through undefeated. And it's a lot of fun to see a tournament bracket, and it's a lot of fun to fill one out. Um, you know, when you think about filling out these brackets, though, you do know that, you know, it's just a guess. It's just a guessing game. I mean, you could do an office pool, and you could have the person that knows the least amount about basketball, and they can end up winning the whole thing. And everybody, it always seems like the joke is, ah, they just pick based on the mascots. Like, if you know nothing about college basketball, you probably have no clue what the mascots or the team nickname is. You know, it's like, it's like one person joked that uh, they just picked based on the uniform colors. Well, if you don't know anything about college basketball, you don't know what the uniform colors these teams are anyway. And it's fascinating. You know, I've in about a decade and a half, I've won two office pools, but really for the most part, you know, it's it could be the person that knows nothing about college basketball. They fill it out or they ask somebody else to fill it out, and they end up winning the whole thing. So uh, I think Gonzaga is the biggest story coming into the tournament. Another interesting story is Michigan. 
And what a great job Juwan Howard has done running that Michigan program. He hired a pretty good staff led by Phil Martelli, the former St. Joe's head coach. And they've they battled a little bit of adversity, though. I mean, they've had some injuries. It's going to be tough for Michigan. It looks like they got a pretty decent bracket in front of them where, you know, if they get past the 16 seed, second round they're looking at LSU or St. Bonaventure. Uh, you know, Florida State looks pretty tough, although late in the season Florida State did stumble a couple times, including one game against Notre Dame a couple weeks ago where they got blown out. Uh, but I think Michigan is an interesting story because of what Juwan Howard's been able to do to maintain and kind of build on what John Beeline was able to get there. And uh, Juwan Howard, I think it could be an excellent NBA head coach. You know, if I'm a, an NBA GM or I'm running an NBA franchise and I need a head coach, Juwan Howard, I don't know if he's the first call I make, but he's certainly one of the first three or four calls I make because he's done a great job with that Michigan team, and they might even be better than where they were under John Beeline, partly because they're running a lot of NBA sets. You know, they're not necessarily taking a ton of threes like a lot of NBA teams are these days, but Juwan Howard has done a great job with that Michigan team and has really, you know, got Michigan back on top in a very, very difficult Big Ten, a, a conference that had nine teams reached the NCAA tournament. And, uh, you know, Juwan Howard played at Michigan at a very interesting time. You know, you think about the Fab Five in the early 1990s, four of the five members of the Fab Five ended up playing in the NBA. Ray Jackson was the only guy who didn't, and even then he was a good college player. But I look at Michigan being an interesting story based on, you know, what he has been able to do, and I mean Juwan Howard. And also because you think about the last time they won to a national championship, it was 1989. I think it was more maybe one of the most underrated great stories in NCAA tournament history. You know, everybody talks about the early 90s. They may even talk about some of the other great Michigan teams over the last decade. I think about the team led by Trey Burke and Tim Hardaway Jr. that reached the national championship game before losing. I think about Duncan Robinson hitting a bunch of threes for Michigan and then uh, a team a couple of years ago making a run. Uh, you know, so Michigan and John Beeline, you know, it was a great run that they have had. And Michigan has been a consistent basketball powerhouse. But, you know, when you think about the great Michigan teams, you don't necessarily think about the last time they won the national championship that much. That's partly because the Fab Five was just so high profile that you forget about the 1989 team. And you really forget about one of the more underrated legendary stories in tournament history. I mean, after all, Michigan had a really good regular season they went 24 and 7 under head coach Bill Frieder however Bill Frieder decided you know I want to be in warmer weather and Arizona State was uh, investing a lot in their basketball program and Arizona State hired Bill Frieder before the tournament well athletic director I believe it was Bo Schembechler at the time the legendary football coach and Bo Schembechler made the famous line right there where he said I want a Michigan man coaching Michigan and so even though Bill Frieder wanted to coach a tournament Bo Schembechler told him to take a hike. Yeah, get out of here. You want to you want to leave? You want to go to Arizona State? Well, good. Pack your bags. You're going to Arizona State. And so they started the NCAA tournament with a record of 24 and seven, and with an interim head coach. Steve Fisher took to, <laughs> he took over, and the Wolverines ended up winning six games and winning the whole thing. Six is also an interesting number. And not only was it the record of Steve Fisher in the tournament, six and zero. Oh, uh, but it was also six players from that team that ended up playing in the NBA. You know, you think about the Fab Five and how great they were. They had five players make the NBA off of that roster. You know, the four members of the Fab Five, Chris Webber, Juwan Howard, Jalen Rose, Jimmy King, and then they also had Eric Riley, the backup center. He ended up playing a little bit in the NBA with the Houston Rockets. 
Now, the six players that ended up making the NBA, they were led by Glenn Rice. You know, he was an outstanding scorer, averaged about 25 points a game in, at Michigan that year. And he was about a 25-point-a-game guy in the NBA in the middle of the prime of his career back with the Miami Heat and Charlotte Hornets. And so he was outstanding. Lloyd Vaught, one of the more underrated power forwards. Uh, he was with the Clippers in the 90s. Um, you know, he was a big score for them. Rumeo Robinson hit some big free throws in the national championship game against Seton Hall. Terry Mills, who was a 6'10 stretch four, who was a guy that probably in today's NBA would be a lot more valuable than he was even back in the 1990s because he could just stand behind the three-point line and hit one outside shot after another. Sean Higgins and Demetrius Callup also ended up playing in the NBA. So that was a great team, and that was one of the more underrated legendary stories in tournament history was that 89 team. And I think about Steve Fisher, you know, coached that team, ended up coaching the Fab Five, ended up leaving after Michigan had some NCAA uh, issues in terms of, you know, maybe possible violations. And, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure what Steve Fisher either did or didn't, or maybe it was, you know, Booster Ed Martin giving Chris Weber cash or things like that. Uh, but I do know that Michigan, you know, has been a really big, consistent program over the last 30 years. I mean, especially in a year where you see a bunch of blue bloods, you know, Duke, Kentucky, Indiana, miss the tournament again. I mean, for Kentucky and Duke, it's a rare occasion for them to miss the tournament. For Indiana, it's become more and more of a common thing for them to not be in the tournament. You know, Michigan State being 11 seed and being in a play-in game, uh, I, I still call it a play-in game. I mean, uh, they call it the first four, but they really just call it the first four because they want to make teams feel good about being. Uh, usually it was in Dayton, but now it's going to be in the state of Indiana, obviously, because that's where the entire tournament's going to be this year. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, if you're Michigan State and you lose to UCLA, I mean, did you really play in the tournament? You know, you were part of the first four, but were you really in there? Michigan State's one of those interesting stories because they've had a bad year, and I think that's been one of the more intriguing things, maybe one of the more fun things about the NCAA tournament is the fact that you see new names year in and year out. You know, Baylor being a one seed, that's becoming more and more of a common thing. But who saw Illinois coming? The Fighting Illini is a one seed this year. Alabama's a two seed. Houston's a two seed. I mean, how many mid-majors? I mean, the great, the mo the really the refreshing thing about college basketball and the thing that I like about college basketball over college football more than anything is you can be in the West Coast Conference, you can be Gonzaga, you can be the you can be in the American like Houston is. You know, you could be a team that's playing in the West Coast Conference like BYU and you could still be a 6 seed and you could still play for a national championship. You could be Creighton, you could be in the Big East. You know, you could have come from a smaller conference as Creighton came to the Big East a few years ago and you can play for a national championship. You know, you could be one of these teams that you like uh, Loyola, Loyola Chicago. A team that uh, reached the Final Four a few years ago. Sister Jean still alive at 101 years old. You know, in college football, they would have given them a nice little bowl game. Okay, you, you're playing on December 26th. You know, good luck to you. Here's your money. Have a nice season. But in college basketball, there's none of that. And I certainly like the fact that you can be in any conference and you can play for a national championship. College football politics have just kind of destroyed the game. And every year, it's the same four teams. It's Alabama, it's Clemson, it's Ohio State, and then maybe you throw in like a, a, a Notre Dame or Oklahoma. Uh, but it doesn't really change from, from year to year. In college basketball, the landscape changes constantly. And so I think that's a refreshing thing about the NCAA tournament. And really the refreshing thing 
about college basketball in general. So I'm excited about the tournament, a lot of fun things. 1989, though, we mentioned Michigan and that team that had six players uh, reach the NBA. 1989 also had a very interesting trend. It was the year of the coaches on the PA microphone. After all, I think there was a little bit of an issue in the late 80s with you know, fans getting upset at calls by the officials, which is something that's never new, and that's never going to change. But it seemed like fans, for whatever reason, felt the need to throw things on the court. You know, they decided – and so, you know, they, there was a little bit of an issue. You know, everybody was, was concerned because there was this uh, growing thought of, you know, if there's a bad call, well, you just throw a bunch of debris on the floor. And so it's like uh, this, somehow somebody came up with the idea that, okay, to control the crowd, to make sure the crowd doesn't get uh, too unruly – you put coaches on the microphone, and you give the coach a microphone and tell them, "Hey, don't throw any, don't, don't stop throwing stuff on the floor." And it really caused some interesting moments. 1989 was the calendar year that had three in particular that were just outstanding. You know, coaches getting on the microphone and really firing up the crowd, and really the official, the official or whoever decided, "Okay, let's give the coach mic. He'll make sure that the crowd stays under control." It didn't necessarily work out, you know, to the uh, – <laughs> didn't really work out all that well in a couple of cases. But when you think about it, you know, the most memorable moment of a coach getting on a microphone during that game would probably be uh, Sam Weish in 1989. He was coaching the Cincinnati Bengals. They were taking on Seattle, and uh, there was a bad call, and fans started throwing stuff on the field. And Sam Weish got on the microphone, and he uttered these legendary words. Will the next person that sees anybody throw anything onto this field, point them out, and get them out of here. You don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. And in the city of Cincinnati and in the state of Ohio, I think that has been recited over and over and over again. Cincinnati natives probably mention that all the time. You know, you do something stupid. Hey, you don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. You know, because in Cleveland they had the dog, the dog pound, and the dog pound I think was famous for throwing bones on the field. So the end zone over there near the dog pound would just be littered with like dog treats. You know, there'd be dog bones in the end zone. You know, they were they would throw stuff after bad calls. You know, and so that was one of the reasons why. Uh, somebody thought it'd be a good idea. Hey, when the crowd gets unruly, just give the coach the microphone and tell him to to you know make sure that he controls the crowd. Yeah, there was a couple instances in college basketball. Maybe my favorite would be Billy Tubbs, 1989. He's coaching Oklahoma. They got a home game. There was a bad call. Fans started throwing stuff on the floor, and so Billy Tubbs got on the microphone. And uh, I think this was even better than the Sam Weish exchange in Cincinnati. Here's Billy Tubbs. Let's hear Billy. Regardless of how terrible the fish do not going to be a technical on Billy Tubbs. That's unbelievable. He never passes up an opportunity. He ended up getting a technical foul for that, but uh, it was still a great moment. Regardless of how terrible the officiating is, don't do not throw things on the floor. That was Billy Tubbs, and that was a memorable moment, no question about it. So Billy Tubbs gets on the microphone, and after all, if you're going to have a college basketball trend in the late 1980s, of course Bob Knight's going to get involved. I have commented that somebody was here. Here's Knight. Keep that in mind. You know, I don't care what the quality of the officiating is. You don't throw anything in here. There you go. It's kind of weird Bob Knight talking about don't throw things on the floor. After all, it was a few years before 
when uh, Bob Knight in 1985 decided to pick up a chair and throw it across the free throw lane. So, you know, Bob Knight's never been one where it's like, okay, uh, follow his rules. It's kind of do as he says and not as he does. Uh, is a Bob Knight, uh, you know, kind of a weird example and kind of one of the more polarizing coaches in college basketball history. But he got his point across, and I think the fans, uh, you know, you, you heard them applaud a little bit. So, yeah, they made sure not to throw things on the floor. You know, Bob Knight tells you not to throw anything on the floor. Hey, forget about him throwing the chair across the free throw lane. Okay, Bob, we'll make sure to listen to, to whatever you got to say. So it, that's one of the more interesting trends of the late 80s, and all three of those – happened in the 1989 calendar year. So I kind of wonder, you know, that was a trend that kind of came and went, although it almost feels like when we get fans back in the arena, you know, are they going to start throwing things on the floor once again? I mean, that's one of those things that you don't necessarily have to worry about as much in the year 2020 and 2021, unfortunately, though, as uh, we are all looking forward to getting back to sporting events with, uh, if, uh, if not full crowds, you know, close to full crowds, uh, knowing that um, the atmosphere. I mean, really, when you think about one of the things that kind of got me drawn into sports at a young age, really was the atmosphere of the crowd. You know, it was the roar of the crowd. It was just kind of everything that, you know, that kind of came with a, a sporting event. You know, I enjoyed going to games, and I really enjoyed going to games when it had a large crowd, you know, when it kind of had that environment. And you get that every now and, and then where you get like a Saturday night, you get a packed house, and – you know, the fans are just into the game from start to finish. Those are the fun games. Those are really the fun moments. And those are really the things that I think stand out to me when I go to games and when I go to sporting events. And those are the moments and memories that really don't ever leave you. They, they end up lasting about a lifetime. Those memories, especially those games like it's a Saturday night or even if you go to an NBA game on a weekday and it's still a, a pretty good crowd, maybe you're facing a really good opponent with a couple superstars and the place is just electric. You know, those are the moments I, I miss most over the last calendar year uh, since uh, the pandemic hit in uh, early March of 2020. And I don't even, I didn't even know what a pandemic meant. I didn't even, you know, I, I knew of epidemic. It's like you get to a pandemic level, it's like, oh, what do we, get, what does this mean? Oh, it means basically everything's kind of shut down and there's no sports. And I had no clue what to do last year. It was really depressing not having an NCAA tournament to look at and break down and fill out a bracket, and luckily this year we got a bracket to fill out. So it is certainly fun to be filling out a bracket this year. This is the Tyson on Sports Podcast. I'm Tyson Whiting. It's the premier edition. I, I'm a little bit rusty, though. You know, I've been uh, calling hockey for the last two and a half years, and really it's a very different format. You know, play-by-play -play is much different than uh, a normal sports talk radio show. I mean, after all, we're kind of having a conversation here. But play-by-play, play, you're just kind of watching what you, you know, you're kind of watching the game and just trying to describe it the best you can. So it is a different format, no question about it. And I am a little bit rusty, but, uh, hey, we're going to have some fun here as this is the premier edition of the Tyson on Sports podcast. And uh, we're kind of talking about sports with a little bit of a historical perspective, a little bit of sports trivia mixed in. And uh, really, when you think about the NCAA tournament, you kind of think about the things that happened, but you also think about what the, the biggest what-ifs in the tournament. And obviously, last year, the ultimate what-if is there was no tournament at all. I know Dick Vitale wrote a great book about the uh, what, what would have happened had there been an NCAA tournament. He has Florida State winning the whole thing. They're a four, four seed this year. I don't know. I, it's kind of tough to pick against Gonzaga with as dominant as they have been in the NCAA tournament, but I think it's some of the other big what-ifs. 
You know, I live over here in the Salt Lake Valley, so we certainly watch a lot of BYU basketball. And 2011 was probably BYU's year. I mean, it was the year of Jimmer for that. BYU was a top-five team. They had beaten San Diego State on the road in late February. That was a team that featured Kawhi Leonard and Malcolm Thomas. And the sky was the limit for BYU. It felt like BYU was going to the Final Four that year. And it felt like it was something special. And then Brandon Davies gets suspended. And I remember he got suspended a couple days after the San Diego State big road win. And Brandon Davies gets suspended. And I'll go to my I'll go to my grave saying that BYU would have gone to the Final Four had Brandon Davies not gotten suspended. I mean, you talk about a guy that was good enough to play in the NBA for a little bit with the 76ers and the Nets. I know that was the 76ers team that tanked, but still, he had a, a talented 6'10 big guy. And BYU didn't really have another 6'10 talented big guy to back him up and replace him when he got suspended. So as good as BYU was with that backcourt of Jimmer Fredette and Jackson Emery, also had uh, Noah Hartsock hitting threes and Charles Abuo, and you know, they, had a, they had a really good team. But it was one of those situations where you lose your big guy, it was tough, and BYU ended up losing in the Sweet 16 in overtime to Florida. If Brandon Davies were there, BYU probably beats Florida. I mean, that game went to overtime, and Jimmer didn't even have that good a shooting night, and yet they lost in overtime to Florida. They would have beaten Florida. They probably would have found a way to win the Elite Eight game, and I'm thinking the Final Four, you get there, okay, Jimmer is probably as good as Kemba, Kemba Walker, uh, that year in college, I mean, Jimmer ended up winning a lot of the awards. And remember, that was the championship game. That was the single worst college fo- uh, college basketball national championship game I've ever seen. UConn and Butler, uh, that was really ugly. I mean, I think the winning team ended up with something close to 40 points. I mean, that was the worst national championship game ever, which makes you think. BYU gets there. They could have not only gotten to the Final Four, it's possible BYU wins the entire thing. And you talk about what-ifs. I mean, that's the biggest what-if in BYU basketball history. If Brandon Davies doesn't get suspended, I think BYU wins the whole thing. I also think about 2000 when Kenyon Martin got injured. Uh, Cincinnati had an outstanding team that year. Kenyon Martin was their superstar. He gets injured. Cincinnati ends up losing in the second round. I think in 1993, maybe the, the first big tournament moment I remember. It was a year before with Christian Leitner hitting the shot against Kentucky. But you also think about 1993. Michigan's in the national championship game. They're taking on North Carolina, led by Eric Montross and George Lynch. And Chris Weber calls timeout late in the game. Now, if Chris Weber had not called that timeout, does Michigan end up going and scoring? You know, obviously, since they don't call the timeout, they got to scramble and do something. You know, do they get the ball to Jalen Rose and he scores? Or did they get it to Jerron Howard? He goes and scores. It was one of those... What if moments where, you know, if Chris Webber doesn't call that timeout, who knows what happens that possession. I mean, he almost traveled uh, early in the possession after getting a rebound on a missed free throw. But who knows what would happen there. So that's one of the other big what ifs. And I'm kind of curious, you know, this year, what's the big what if? You know, maybe there's going to be a team. I mean, after all, teams got to be healthy and they got to stay COVID free. You know, the other unique thing, obviously, is that the entire tournament's going to be played in the state of Indiana, which if you're in Indiana where they claim that they grow basketball there, you know, it's an amazing thing. You know, I kind of wish I was over at Hinkle Fieldhouse this weekend watching that tournament uh, with the BYU in there as they're going to be playing either Michigan State or UCLA on Saturday night. 
Wouldn't that be a lot of fun? Be at Hinkle Field House or maybe be at Lucas Oil Stadium. I can't imagine there's going to be full houses at, at any of these games, but it certainly would, would be fun to occupy a seat there and watch four games in a day in the first round and then maybe another two games in the second round. Or what would have really been fun, if you had a lot of money and you were able to get tickets to all these games, you kind of go each day, go to a different site. You know, one day you go to Hinkle Fieldhouse, maybe another day you go to Lucas Oil Stadium, and then a day after that you go to Assembly Hall in Bloomington. You know, that would be a lot of fun. Uh, you, you kind of, Or maybe you could just, you know, kind of tour the city of Indianapolis, you know, go to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You know, you got to make sure you eat at St. Elmo Steakhouse. I mean, I had the shrimp there. The shrimp cocktail is the most spicy, hot thing I've ever had. And yet, I do it again in a heartbeat. So you got to go to St. Elmo's and you got to get the famous cocktail shrimp. <laughs> That's the first thing you got to do in Indianapolis. Hopefully, the weather's pretty good over there in Indiana. Uh, of course, what do I care? I don't get to go to Indiana. I'm sitting here uh, in the Salt Lake Valley uh, watching uh, hockey, as I'll be calling the Utah Grizzlies and Rapid City Rush this weekend in a two-game series. But you know, it's it's one of those where in Indiana. If you had an all-access pass, you know, what venue do you go to? You go to Hinkle Fieldhouse. I think you kind of try to supply, you know, kind of get a sample of just about every site there because this is unique, and although it's great for 2021, I'm not entirely sure I want to see it year in and year out where the entire tournament's just in one state. You know, it's kind of fun here in the Salt Lake Valley seeing the tournament arrive here every four or five years. Or you go to a place like Wichita, an Interest Bank Arena, a place I've been to that – host the tournament on a consistent basis or Tulsa uh, another building that I've been at a BOK center you know it's kind of fun to see all these different uh, venues and all these different regions and um, you know I kind of hope that in 2022 we can get back to that as obviously we look to return to normal and I'm starting to I'm trying to figure out if there's anything else that's unique about this tournament other than the entire field being played in Indianapolis or Indiana. I mean, obviously they'll have some games over at uh, Purdue's uh, Arena in West Lafayette. They'll have some games in Assembly Hall. The majority of it will be in Indianapolis, though. You know, you think about the COVID restrictions and really you think about, uh, you know, teams having until the end of Tuesday to figure out if they're going to be able to play or not. You know, is there going to be a team that gets to the Sweet 16 and then all of a sudden you have an issue? And then what do you do when, when that happens? I mean, you know, do you just call it a forfeit? Do you put a replacement team in, which would really be weird? Although I think that's how uh, Utah ended up winning the, the 1994 or 90 or uh, 1944 national championship. They ended up filling in uh, for another team and ended up winning the whole thing. You know, could you have a scenario like that where it's like, okay, Louisville, come on in. You are playing in the Sweet 16 now, replacing uh, somebody else. You know, you're replacing Virginia. Good luck you got Gonzaga. You know, that's really one of the things that, you know, could pop up. You know, what happens if he gets to the Final Four? And then all of a sudden there's an issue. So that's something that I think the tournament is probably thinking, okay, we got plans in place, but obviously it would be a little bit disappointing if all of a sudden you had to go to Plan B there late in the tournament or midway through the tournament and try to figure out what to do there. So obviously 2020 was a bad year. It was a unique year. 2021 still has its challenges uh, to face, uh, albeit with the uh, smaller crowds in the NCAA tournament. This is the Tyson on Sports Podcast. I'm Tyson Whiting, kind of uh, getting off the rust a little bit as it's been a long time since I've done a sports talk radio show, a sports talk podcast, but we're back on the horse and we're back in business. Drew Brees retired. 
that was not a surprise. I think everybody knew Drew Brees at the age of 42 was going to retire. The big question for the Saints, though, is does Sean Payton trust Taysom Hill enough to be his full-time starting quarterback next year? And I think he does. You know, you think about the last three or four years, you know, Sean Payton, I think the quote was, he's in the building you know, when refer, in reference to who was going to replace Drew Brees. He's in the building. And uh, in the building, I'm not entirely sure he was talking about Jameis Winston either. You know, I think he's talking about Taysom Hill. And you talk about quarterback started a few games last year, but Taysom Hill was that jack of all trades. You know, is he going to be a better quarterback having a full offseason knowing that he's going to be just that, just a quarterback? Doesn't have to worry about running pass routes. Doesn't have to worry about running the ball, even though he's going to run the ball quite a bit. They're probably going to have some design draws, and he'll probably end up getting 10 or 11 carries a game. Because, you know, a guy that quick, that athletic, that strong, you know, that's going to be part of his game, which means that you're going to have to have a good backup because Taysom Hill is going to get hit a little bit more than your average starting quarterback. But I do think Taysom Hill is capable, especially when he's going to spend the entire offseason focusing on just being a quarterback. Doesn't have to worry about covering kicks. Doesn't have to worry about going down on the punt team and making a tackle. You know, he's just going to be worried about playing quarterback. And I kind of – I'm intrigued to see what happens with Taysom Hill. I mean, after all, he ended up filling in for a few games, and he was the, he was the starting quarterback, but it still kind of felt like, you know, because he did so many other things, it still kind of felt like, okay, he's our quarterback, but we'd kind of like to line him up in the slot every now and then as well. Uh, but this year it's going to be different, and Sean Payton, who's going to be in his 16th season as Saints head coach, this will be the first year he will not have Drew Brees as his starting quarterback. And what a career it was. You know, the numbers are astounding. He's probably a top-five quarterback all-time, maybe. I mean, he did win the one Super Bowl. I mean, where does Drew Brees rank? I mean, if you think about if you have Tom Brady at number one, I mean, Drew Brees isn't that far behind. I mean, he didn't have as nearly as good a career as Tom Brady, Obviously didn't win as many championships. Only got to the Super Bowl twice. Uh, actually, I think it might have just been one time he ended up getting this to the Super Bowl because I think that 2006 team, when he showed up with the New Orleans Saints, had that great run. And uh, one of the more interesting stories uh, in NFL history was that Saints team who in 2005 had to play in a couple different homes. They played some home games in San Antonio. They played some home games in Baton Rouge where the LSU Tigers normally play. You know, they uh, were uh, left out of New Orleans because of Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, not only the Saints being rebuilt with Sean Payton being hired as the head coach and signing Drew Brees to be their starting quarterback, drafting Reggie Bush second overall, but then you get to the Superdome and Steve Gleason has that block punt and they had a great night and then turned out to be a great season. You know, ended up finding Marcus Colson to be their best wide receiver. Uh, that was just a great Saints story. And really, you talk about the leadership of Drew Brees and really Sean Payton putting Drew Brees in, in situations where he could be successful. Drew Brees ended up having a very, very successful career. And just think about the bad mistake that Nick Saban made. And, you know, he had a choice between Drew Brees and Dante Culpepper, and he picked Dante Culpepper. I think Sean Payton and the Saints made the right choice and bringing in Drew Brees, who's not only the best quarterback in Saints history, got to be one of the top five or six quarterbacks in NFL history. You know, you got Tom Brady. I always put John Elway right up there. Joe Montana, you got to think about him. Maybe John Unitas. But for Drew Brees to be as consistently good, 
for 15 years, consistently healthy. You talk about putting him right at the top of the list, right next to Brady. Peyton Manning's got to be in that company as well. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame as he's part of the class of 2021. But Drew Brees, got to be right up there with him. And really, I think the thing that made Drew Brees special was his smarts, his decision-making, his ability to make quick decisions. You know, you saw quarterbacks make bad throws. You know, you saw Peyton Manning every now and then get flustered, make bad throws. I don't remember too many bad throws Drew Brees ever made. Certainly saw a little bit of that in the 2020 season. You know, late in his career, maybe you saw a little bit more of an inconsistency from Drew Brees. But even then, at you know, past the age of 40, you know, the guy who kept himself in tremendous shape his entire career. You know, you talk about a guy that I don't remember Drew Brees having too many bad games. And if there was, his bad games were still pretty good by NFL standards. Drew Brees will be missed as one of the great quarterbacks in NFL history, but he's not going to be gone for a long time in terms of people seeing him. He's still going to be visible. I mean, after all, he's going to be on NBC. I don't know what role he's going to play. I don't know if he's immediately going to take over the spot where Chris Collinsworth normally normally sits. I don't know if he's going to take that seat immediately. Maybe it's a three-man booth. You put Drew Brees in there with Chris Collinsworth and Al Michaels. You know, maybe you have Drew Brees start out in the studio and then maybe a year or two later have him replace Collinsworth in the booth. It'll be interesting to see what NBC ends up doing with Drew Brees. I think he signed the contract with NBC even before he retired with the New Orleans Saints. So it'll be fun to see what Drew Brees does as a broadcaster. Now the question is, will he be more like Tony Romo or more like Jason Witten? You know, with Tony Romo, he showed up and immediately was predicting plays and predicting him at a, a high rate of success, whereas Jason Witten was uh, saying that Aaron Rodgers uh, pulled a rabbit out of his head. You know, it didn't necessarily work out for Jason Witten, and even now – with him being retired, I don't even know if he's going back to the booth or maybe he starts a coaching career or maybe, you know, obviously with him making as much money as he has, you know, maybe Jason Witten goes and does something else for a living. Doesn't even have to be involved with football. Maybe he could just go play golf the rest of his life. Whatever Jason Witten decides to do is up to him, but, uh, you know, he probably is not going to be in the broadcast booth next season. Now with Drew Brees, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. Is he Tony Romo? Is he Jason Witten? Is he somewhere in between? And where does Chris Collinsworth factor into the whole equation? Because after all, it's not like Chris Collinsworth is going to be going anytime soon. And Chris Collinsworth is still young enough, even though he was a rookie in the NFL in 1981, which means there is a little bit of age to him, but still young enough to still be in the booth for another five to ten years. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Drew Brees. That'll be one of the more intriguing broadcasting storylines coming into the 2021 NFL season and in future editions of the Tyson on Sports podcast we'll talk about Dak Prescott we'll also delve deeper into the quarterback shakeup as after all Jared Goff's now a member of the Detroit Lions Matthew Stafford's now an LA Ram you know there's going to be a lot of interesting things there that will be the next edition of the Tyson on Sports podcast next time on the show we'll also talk about the Jazz after all they're uh, one of the best teams in the NBA but are they true title contenders and if they are What's going to make the difference in a seven-game series against LeBron and the Lakers, against Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers? It's going to have to come down to Donovan Mitchell playing like a superstar. He is going to have to play like a first-team All-NBA guy if the Jazz want to win a championship. And if he doesn't, it's going to be really tough because when you're going up against the Lakers and their two superstars, 
you know, when you're in a seven-game series and the opposing team has the two two best players on the floor, it's going to be hard to win a seven-game series that way. You know, when you play the Clippers, yes, Kawhi Leonard's going to dominate. He's going to play well. He's got championship experience. But when you think about other guys like Paul George, you don't necessarily think of him as being a clutch playoff performer. You know, playoff P is uh, not uh, not necessarily playoff Paul or anything like that. So I think playoff P actually stands for playoff pathetic. That's what uh, playoff P is, is Paul George is not necessarily bad in postseason play, but he doesn't. Come, uh, you know, he doesn't come across as a superstar when it matters the most. But can Donovan Mitchell come? Can, you know, can he come up big in the right moments? Can he be that superstar in key situations? You know, when the series is on the on the line, you know, can Donovan Mitchell deliver? And that's going to make a big difference between whether the Jazz win a championship or are simply a good team in the regular season, maybe even a great team in the regular season, but end up losing in the second or third round of the playoffs because when it comes down to it, your top player, you know, when you're going up against other top players and other top teams, you're going to have to play like a superstar. And Donovan Mitchell has got that signature shoe line by Adidas. You know, Adidas has invested a lot of money in him. But can Donovan Mitchell deliver when it matters the most? That will be what we talk about in the next edition of the Tyson on Sports podcast. I mean, after all, it's going to be a fun edition. Later this week will be the second edition as we're knocking off a little bit of rust here in the first edition of the show. And uh, we had a little bit of fun, talked a little bit of college basketball. My final four prediction as I'm filling out my bracket, I believe as we speak, I'm going Gonzaga in the West region. It'll be intriguing to see where Iowa finishes up. They're the two seed in the West region. You know, I think USC's got a chance with Evan Mobley, the sixth seed. If they can get past the 11th seed, either Wichita State or Drake, whoever wins the first four matchup, I think USC's going to be a tough out. I don't know that, you know, you talk about either Creighton or Virginia. They're on that side with Gonzaga. I'm not sure about them. I think Gonzaga's got a pretty decent path, not, not necessarily the toughest path to get through the West region. Now, you look to the East, Michigan's an intriguing story, but they've had a couple injuries. They've had some adversity they've had to face. Juwan Howard's going to get his team ready to play. And I think the big thing, though, in Michigan's side of the bracket, I'm looking at Florida State, the four seed. Can Leonard Hamilton finally get his team to the Final Four? Can he finally uh, kind of get over the hump? And uh, Florida State's got a good team, but they struggle a little bit down the stretch. You know, this might not necessarily be as good a Florida State team as they had last year. So I think Florida State's intriguing, but I think Michigan gets all the way to the Elite Eight. When they get there, they'll probably face either Texas, Alabama, you know, maybe BYU, the sixth seed, can make a little bit of a run. It'll be intriguing there. I do think, though, that uh, that's a tough one. I don't necessarily see the East being as difficult as some of the other regions. I think my gut tells me Florida State gets to the final four there. So I got Gonzaga and Florida State in the the uh, left side of the bracket. On the right side, you got the South region. I mean, obviously, all these things are going to be played in the state of Indiana, but the South region, as it's named, you know, Baylor's going to be tough to beat. They get to the second round, they'll play either North Carolina or Wisconsin. That that will be a difficult matchup for Baylor, whoever they play. And it looks like North Carolina is starting to peak at the right time. So they're playing some good basketball. I think when you get to the 4-5 matchup, I think Winthrop beats Villanova. I think if you're talking about 12C beating a 5, I got Winthrop beating Villanova. I think they'll take on Purdue. And in that matchup, 
That's hard to say because I think Winthrop's pretty good. Uh, Winthrop could end up going all the way to the Sweet 16 there. At Texas Tech, Utah State, I think it's an intriguing first-round matchup. You know, the, you think about Texas uh, Texas Tech, they took uh, Utah State's football coach, Matt Wells, a couple years ago. Uh, but I do think uh, it was interesting. Not only did Utah State make the tournament, but they made the tournament without even having to play in a playing game. I mean, Joe Lenardi basically had them as the last team in. So you kind of wondered, were they going to be the first team out? Were they going to be the last one in and have to play in a play-in game? You know, one of those first four matchups. Instead, Utah State uh, avoided not only, you know, they avoided, you know, not only the bubble and being on the outside looking in, they avoided a first four matchup as well. So I think Utah State, you know, they got a chance against Texas Tech. I mean, I wouldn't underestimate Utah State in this game. But if there's a six seed I like maybe more than the others, I like Texas Tech. I think Texas Tech, if they get to the second round, they could have a good chance to beating Arkansas. So I think Texas Tech actually gets all the way to the Sweet 16. You look at the other side uh, below them with Ohio State, they'll, they'll end up beating Oral Roberts. You know, do they face Florida or Virginia Tech? I think Ohio State beats either one of those teams. I think you could have a Sweet 16 matchup of Texas Tech and Ohio State. I think there's something about Texas Tech. You know, they were in the, the championship game a couple years ago. They got that experience. Obviously, only a couple players returned from those teams. But uh, I, there's something about Texas Tech that kind of intrigues me. They stand out in the South region, which means they'll probably end up losing in the first round to Utah State. So in that region, it's tough to say. I think Winthrop can end up being a Cinderella story there. But ultimately, I think it's going to be Baylor and – Texas Tech. I got Texas Tech going to the Elite Eight, but I got Baylor advancing to the Final Four. And that's no fun if you go chalk, but I did pick the four-seed Florida State in the East region. Now, in the Midwest, Illinois is the one seed. That doesn't really feel like a tough bracket. The, the team that really stands out, though, is Oklahoma State. With Cade Cunningham, the projected number one overall pick in the 2021 draft. I think Cunningham and Oklahoma State, they're playing great. They ended up losing in the Big 12 championship game to Texas. But I'd watch out for Oklahoma State. They're one of the most athletic teams in the country. If they can get past Liberty in the first round, they'll play either Tennessee or Oregon State. This might be the type of tournament where you're really intrigued to take the 12 seeds in just about all four regions. Oregon State ended up winning their conference tournament. I think Oregon State could beat Tennessee there. Ohio, Oklahoma State, though, I think I've got going pretty far. In fact, I have Oklahoma State beating Illinois in the Sweet 16, going all the way to the Elite Eight. And uh, Houston's intriguing, though, the number two seed. Kelvin Sampson, in fact, I think is actually going to have to play at Assembly Hall, where he used to coach Indiana. Uh, that, that'll be the in the first two rounds. Uh, Houston's good, but I don't think they're great. I think Houston certainly can be beat. San Diego State almost feels like they're not as good as 2020. I mean, 2020, they're probably a projected number one seed. Uh, San Diego State, though, does have enough players back from last year's team that uh, you know they could end up making a little bit of a run and using the fact that uh, the 2020 seniors and the 2020 um, uh, team, you know, maybe they're playing for them as much as they're playing for the 2021 team. San Diego State, if they get past Syracuse, can be pretty tough. Uh, and they can end up making a Sweet 16 or Elite 8 run. But in the Midwest, I actually got Oklahoma State going to the uh, Final Four. So I'd have um, Gonzaga against Florida State and and uh, Baylor and Oklahoma State. Uh, those are my four final four teams. To get to the championship game, 
I'm all on the Gonzaga bandwagon as this being their year. So I got them in the championship game against, I kind of hate picking one seeds, but uh, Baylor. I got Gonzaga and Baylor in a collision course for the championship game, and I got Gonzaga winning it all. And Mark Few going undefeated for the first time since the 1976 Indiana Hoosiers. So it's been a lot of fun here on the Tyson on Sports podcast, the premier edition. We'll talk later this week, I think on Thursday. We'll talk about the tournament. We'll also talk about NFL quarterbacks and kind of the carousel there. And we'll try to figure out just how many teams will be breaking in a new starting quarterback for the 2021 season. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll also talk a little bit about baseball as that season will get underway as well. And, uh, you know, is it going to be the Dodgers, the Padres, maybe somebody else like the Atlanta Braves can step in there and win the National League. And the American League, who knows what's going to happen there. If the Yankees stay healthy, they're going to be tough. However, the Yankees have not stayed healthy over the last couple years. That kind of opens the door for some other teams in the American League because this possibly be a bounce back year for the Astros. You know, they made, they made it all the way to the ALCS, but do, do, does losing George Springer, you know, does that really hurt their team enough to where they kind of drop a spot? I don't know. The American League's a little bit more up for grabs. Maybe the Toronto Blue Jays. They had a really great offseason. They can end up uh, making a little bit of a run and making some noise in the AL East. We'll talk about all that and a little bit more on the next edition of the Tyson on Sports podcast coming up this Thursday. And thanks for tuning in, and we certainly appreciate everybody's support. Later on this week, I'll be calling some Utah Grizzlies hockey. They'll take on the Rapid City Rush this Friday and Saturday. I'm going to be watching it on a video screen, and that's always a weird experience because, you know, road broad, you know, broadcasters are not traveling on the road this season. And I understand. I mean, it's been the case in the NBA, NHL. So it's like, well, if none of their broadcasters can go, then what makes me special? You know, but the difference is, though, if you're watching an NHL game, you got NHL camera people, you got an NHL production, you end up calling the game and you end up seeing everything. Now, you're going to miss a couple details because you're at the mercy of the video screen you're getting. But the, I can guarantee that the NHL production is a little bit better than what you see in the league the Grizzlies are in. I mean, after all, it seems like half the time the puck's out of the frame. You know, there's so many issues that go along with trying to describe a hockey game, which is tough enough as it is. You know, hockey is, if you've never called hockey before, it is every bit as tough and frustrating as you would think it would be. It is a tough sport to call. It's a tough sport to describe, but that's also what makes it such a fun sport to watch because there are so many details going on out there on the ice. But uh, it is a challenge, and one of those challenges that uh, I do lose sleep every night over, but uh, it is a little bit fun here and there uh, being able to call hockey. But uh, we'll talk a little bit about, about that on the next edition of the Tyson on Sports podcast as well on Thursday. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, at Tyson on Sports. So I'll have the link there. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook, although I don't use that very often. I'm also on Instagram, but I'm not somebody that takes a lot of pictures of myself. And uh, so maybe I'll post the link there, but I don't know what picture I'm going to put on there except for maybe some sort of generic picture of the mountains here in the Salt Lake Valley. And I do say mountains like I'm a a person from the state of Utah, but uh, I guess it is what it is. So we'll talk to you coming up here on Thursday on the next edition of the Tyson on Sports podcast. I'm Tyson Whiting, and it is what it is.